Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Happy Ratsu. Is that how you pronounce it, Ratsu? No, Ratsu. It's Rohats, and a merry Rohats to you too, my friend. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, It's ho. that time of year again. Did you decorate your Bodhi tree this year? I got kids, and we actually do that. You know, when you're a Western Buddhist, you got to kind of, how to say, uh, compromise. Now, I'm actually of Jewish background, so I was used to, when I was a kid, having the Hanukkah bush, Yep. you know, which was a Christmas tree. And uh, Santa Klein would come over and uh, bring the Hanukkah gelt for. Uh, but now, as a Buddhist, we have the Bodhi tree, which actually works really well. You take a Buddha statue, you put the Buddha under your tree with the morning star on top, and of course, decorated with uh, uh, tinsel and stuff. But as a Zen guy, you know all our uh, boxes uh, are empty. So what are we going to talk about today, Jundo? Well, another list. Oh, another one of these long lists of, of 1,100 this or 700 that? No, this is kind of a moderate-sized list. It's only got three. Three? And, but it's, it's a really important one, and that's why we call it the Three Jewels. Now, the Three Jewels sounds like a doo-wop band from the 50s, right? Yes, good point. Ladies and gentlemen, the three jewels. No, <laughs> this is uh, Buddha and two other jewels. Since we've covered Buddha for the last few weeks, our subject today is, Kirk, let me test you. Dharma and Sangha. You've got it, my friend. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Those are the Buddha, three Dharma, jewels. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Yep. Yes. This may be the shortest list we've ever had. Well, the shortest list would be, uh, I guess, a list of one. Well, no, you'd have to have two to make a list. I let's not debate what makes a list. Uh, okay. In any way, in any way, all lists are empty in Zen, right? So uh, we've we've seen the Buddha. We 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 saw that there were many, shall we say, faces of the Buddha, interpretations of the Buddha. We have the Buddha that is the man in India. We have the Buddha that is all reality. And we have the Buddha that is you and me somewhere, and all the, the rocks and trees, right? And all are Buddha. So Buddha is everything, and everything is Buddha. Well, we're going to see, too, that actually Dharma is Sangha, Sangha is Buddha, Buddha is Sangha, Sangha is Buddha and Sangha, which is Buddha, which is the Sangha. In other words, everything is everything else, and yet they are not the same. That's a little bit confusing. We could make a very long list with all those permutations of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. I, I could have gone on for a while. But uh, our topic today is, uh, what is Dharma and what is Sangha? Where would you like to start? Well, I was thinking we could start with Sangha because it's a bit simpler. No, we should put Sangha at the end because Sangha is actually the one we have to talk about most. Okay, well, let's start with Dharma. Dharma has many meanings. Yes, Dharma has many meanings. Okay. 
Oh, and you'd like to know what those are? Well, I, I know a few of them. It, it's, I think the original meaning is the law in the sense of legal law, but also the law of gravity, the laws of science, that the, the way things must be. But it's also the truth. It's also the teachings of the Buddha. It's also all of reality, isn't it? Yes, it is all those things. And it also means each and every single phenomenon. So there, there's, uh, you know, this is confusing because when you're reading a Buddhist book and you come to the word Dharma, you got to pause for a second and think, which one of the Dharma meanings is this? Because sometimes if you get them confused, it doesn't make any sense. But if you realize that they were using it in three actually rather distinct ways, it starts to make sense. So first of all, let, let, let's talk about what the Dharma used to be and what it is now. Now, before the Buddhist time, Dharma was a kind of proper behavior, mostly involving ceremonies in Eastern religion, to get the world to work right. And then the Buddha came along, and he wasn't too much into those ceremonies, so he offered teachings about how the world works. So Dharma is both how the world works and the Buddha's teachings about how the world works and each individual phenomenon, every blade of grass, every moment, every raindrop, every you and me is a dharma. And all the things that make us are dharmas. And this is where it gets into real, you want lists, I got a list for you. <laughs> You're not going to read a list of 100,000 different types of dharmas, are you? I could, because uh, there was in uh, ancient India, before they had uh, modern science, they tried to understand all the pieces that put us together. And they were both physical pieces and also mind pieces, plus some formless pieces. But what are the pieces that put Things like sight and taste and touch. But then they would think of our different emotions, such as uh, sad, being a little sad, being very sad, being happy, being very happy, being happy on Tuesdays, <laughs> being, being happy because they had your flavor of ice cream, being happy because uh, so your friend has his flavor. They had categories and categories of ways to understand reality that was similar to our periodic table now. We believe that the different elements that come together, the different uh, parts of the, the brain and senses that come together create reality. Well, in those days, they didn't have that. So they had all these bits and pieces, which were each a dharma. The Zen people came and said, that's all empty. Don't get lost in the bits and pieces. But that's a long time. That's hundreds of years later, right? That's hundreds of years later. Exactly. And in between, there were other people who were coming up with theories about the various dharmas. Well, they all had these lists. And the thing is, nobody could agree on the pieces. Now, these different lists were called the Abhidharma. And they had all the different parts. May I read a list of Abhidharma to you? Sure. We've got plenty of time. Go ahead. First, we have a feeling, then perception and volition, contact and desire, discernment and mindfulness, attention, decision and mental concentration, faith and energy, equanimity, shame at doing evil, decorum and non-attachment, non-aggression, non-harming and calmness, conscientious. And it goes on like that for a long while. 
This was for a total understanding of what makes our mental experience of the world, what makes the world itself. And uh, this is how Buddhists argued for hundreds of years of what puts the world together. And finally, the Zen folks came and said, put that all down. Actually, it was the fellow named Nagarjuna who said, this is all empty, even before the, the, the formal Zen folks. And he said, put down your lists and just realize it's all emptiness. Experience emptiness. Don't worry about the pieces. You're getting lost in the pieces and bits. Put it all down. I kind of prefer that because when you've got all those lists, people expect you to remember them. Yeah. And to analyze them and to compare them. And comparing is duality, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, these are very, very useful lists in a sense that a lot of this makes a lot of uh, sense about how the senses put reality together and the different emotions we feel. It was very much ahead of a time in, uh, of its time in understanding human psychology, uh, for example. But Zen folks are about putting down the complexity. You don't understand the world by understanding the pieces. For example, I had I had lunch just yesterday with a physicist who works at the Particle Collider here. And I was asking him about his research, which was very interesting. I didn't understand one third of what he was telling me, but it was something about neutrinos and a particle beam. Okay? And the work he's doing is very, very important. And I want him to do that work because we want to understand how the universe is physically put together. But what is that going to tell you about lunch, <laughs> about a hill of beans, about life, If even if he understands the neutrinos? So don't get lost in the pieces. Zen folks are about understanding the whole of reality and how to live through it. I can understand a philosophical school wanting to break things down because that's a sort of a logical um, thought experiment that they do, right? But it's true that I, I can't understand my cat by reading a description of the cat. I can only understand my cat by experiencing the cat. By the way, I, I found out neutrinos are lots of them are passing through your cat right now, and you too. I know. But it's not going to tell you anything about the cat. It's not, no. And there's all sorts of things passing through us. And there are light waves in the spectrum that we can't see. There are all sorts of things that we know nothing about. But knowing about them, knowing about infrared uh, energy, for example, doesn't help me to understand what a flower looks like. Zen folks were about putting down the bits and pieces and finding the wholeness, the simplicity of it all, where all the pieces, including you and me, drop away into the flowing wholeness. And I explained this to my physicist, and he was pretty impressed before he, he got back to the, the particle collider. Uh, there's a benefit in putting down all the dividing and the breaking into pieces, because that does separate the world into separate things, including us separate from everything else. So when we realize the wholeness, we believe this is the ultimate dharma, the ultimate teaching, the ultimate reality of it all. And that is the true dharma, the true teaching, the true reality, the true phenomena, which is the wholeness of all things. We realize the wholeness. We realize the something beyond the pieces. And uh, that's good to do, too. Nothing wrong with, uh, how to say this? If you cook, uh, let's say, uh, a pasta pizzoul, that's a nice Italian recipe I know. 
You know, you got to put in your tomatoes. You need your garlic. You need a little oregano. You got to put in your pasta, your rigatoni. But you got to mix it all in there. But there is a time, and you got to throw the cooks, the cook in there too, right? And there's a comes a time when you forget all the separate ingredients and you just taste the pasta puzzle, right? That is Zen, my friend. Taste in the wholeness. Okay, we need to move on to Sangha now. Now, as I understand Sangha, it's the community of people who are studying the Dharma. Right. And uh, again, this is something that uh, has multiple ways to look at. Sangha has a sense of community, but who's in that community and who's out? This is really important. Now, in the old days, Sangha was primarily the priests and the female priest, too, in the monastic community. That was the Sangha. And Buddhism was kind of geared toward the priests because that's where the real action was happening. And the lay people outside were kind of not really part of the Sangha. Now, there, then it came that there were some exceptionally committed lay people who might be considered as part of the Sangha. They, they lived a kind of semi-monastic lifestyle. But what has happened today is that basically any practicing Buddhist, lay, monastic, is considered to be part of the wider community of practicing Buddhists, because this is no longer just something for the monastery. It's something that we can all practice. And finally, Everything could be considered our great community. Every blade of grass, the whole universe, all of reality. And this is where, again, Buddhist teachings say that Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are really the same. Why? Buddha, the wholeness that you cannot even express with the name Buddha. Dharma, the reality, which is everything, which is the wholeness which you cannot even express with the name Buddha or Dharma, Dharma, or Sangha, the community, which is everything, which you cannot even express with the words Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. See, they're all the same. And they're all us, and we are them. But Sangha is really important. Ask me why. Why is Sangha so important? Because I'm a teacher. I need students to be a teacher. i, I got a vested interest here. Is it, you know, otherwise I'm out of work. <laughs> so the Sangha in one sense is everyone, but the Sangha in another sense is the group studying with a specific teacher or in a specific monastery, etc. Right, right. And I... So you've got your own Sangha. I, I, I am biased. I have a vested interest. Yes, I have my own Sangha, Tree Leaf Sangha, which is a community of people who have come together. The reason I'm mentioning it, though, is... Since Buddhism began, Sangha has been vitally important. It is a dangerous thing to practice solely on your own. Now, it's also dangerous if you're in a kind of Sangha that's a bad Sangha with a bad teacher. All right? So, you know, Sanghas can go off the rails. I'm not saying, like, to be in a Sangha guarantees you automatically it's going to be a wholesome experience. But you're also guaranteed to be off the rails if you practice on your own too much, because people tend to get crazy ideas in their head and you need somebody to look over your shoulder and go, hey, guy, 
you're going kind of off the cliff there. Come on back. Not really. Well, there have been lots of Zen masters who practiced on their own. When you think of Bodhidharma sitting in his cave for nine years, he was on his own, unless you're considering all of the teaching he had before that that allowed him to reach the stage when he could be on his own. Yes, that's the point, uh, that uh, Bodhidharma was already uh, kind of an established fellow when his teacher told him to come to China, you see. So he, at a certain point in his career, he practiced on his own. But then he had his own students. And even the Buddhas, people say the Buddha, well, the Buddha practiced on his own. No, the Buddha actually had other teachers. Now, there's some debate about this, but uh, the, the Buddha had teachers that he rejected because he'd tried certain teachings and he didn't like them. And then according to some traditional doc doctrines, the Buddha had teachers in previous lives. Okay? But even if we say, Okay, the Buddha, yeah, he was a self-made man, did it on his own, pulled himself up by his own Buddha bootstraps. Okay, granted. Uh, listen to me. It's still a dangerous thing to practice on your own. Why not have a community of like-minded folks? Why not have uh, people who support you and are kind of sounding boards to tell you, you know, head in a good direction? Why not have a teacher who, by the way, I hate the word teacher. I got a much better term, friend along the way. I think in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about a spiritual friend. Uh, same, same, probably the, the same, same yeah. word. And that's what you want. You don't want a teacher to tell you stuff. You want a teacher who is a, just a, a friend along the way to say, hey, here's what I advise that you try in this direction. That's uh, much better. Because we're not actually learning things. We're not learning about neutrinos and the Abhidharma. We're experiencing things. So you're not actually teaching. You're helping us experience things. Well, you must do the practice and experience for yourself. But if you don't go in certain directions with this practice, you could tend to go off into you know, bad into into the mud, into into the quicksand. You could and and somebody could say, I walked this path before, and what I advise to you is why don't you try this? Now there are all kinds of teachers and friends who will recommend many, many different things. Because the Dharma, what the Buddha taught, as you know from this podcast, nobody agrees exactly what that means. <laughs> so you got seven guys that are going to teach you seven different dharmas. Not exactly the same. Last week we we, we spoke about what are the things that make you a Buddhist de definitely. So there are these things such as impermanence and non-self. We kind of agree on that. But when you get into the details again, we have many, many different flavors. So you, I'm not saying that it's my way. Jundo's way is the Dharma. And Jundo is the Sangha teacher. And you have to do it my way. But you have to find a wholesome way that's right for you. In the West, when people discover Zen or other types of Buddhism, it's generally through books. And what happens is if you read three books by three different teachers, you're going to get three different facets of the Dharma. And while there's a lot of commonality, I think it's true that each one has a certain personality. And that's probably confusing in the long run to not have that grounding in a specific lineage and tradition. You got to find the way that resonates resonates with you, 
works in your life or seems to to be a wholesome direction and stick with it. If it's a good way, it will be a good way proven by how it works for you in your life. What's good for me may not be good for the next guy. There are some ways that are bad for everybody. <laughs> there is no way I know that's good for everybody. But there are good ways and not so good ways. And, uh, it, you know, it's like medicine. It's like cooking pasta pizzoul. There are ways to make a good pasta pizzoul, and there are bad ways, but they may not be all the exact same recipe. Folks, I advise you, find a sangha, a community, find a teacher, try it out for some months. And if it's a good place, you'll know because you'll say, hey, Look what it's doing, the, the, the benefits I'm getting from this, and I don't see any bad effects. That may be a good place for you. Go deep into that. And a good sangha isn't just top-down. It isn't just teacher down to the members of the sangha. It's also the members of the sangha among each other. Traditionally, I think Buddhism was really top-down. It really was. Yeah, but... All those monks in the monastery, they were helping each other as well as getting the top-down information from the head monk. That's very true, very perceptive what you just said, because Japanese society and Chinese society, too, tends to work that way. Even though it appears sometimes to be top-down, like the abbot of the monastery is kind of the king of the place, there is feedback going both ways. And it's actually a very democratic institution that uh, it, it's not just commands from the top and the wisdom of the, the abbot spoken and everyone agrees and memorizes what he says. Everyone must do their own practice and provide feedback to everyone else and support everyone else. Well, in the West, we become even more open about this, that Sangha communities really are a communal effort where you have one fellow who might be kind of, shall we say, the 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 main organizer and guide and and support of the community but the community should be democratic and should should support each other and most importantly should not have cultish aspects if you're if you engage in any sangha zen buddhist or anything any other religion that has those warning signs about a cult things like mind control and brainwashing and keeping you isolated from a family and 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 that all that kind of thing i advise you in this modern time head for the door find a better place because uh, that sounds like it could be a dangerous situation if you're going to find a sangha make sure it's a good one i think another important point about the sangha is that as certain members of the Sangha progress, they become people who are able to teach others, and either they remain in the Sangha or they leave the Sangha to spread that message. Yeah, just this week, I gave a, what's known as Dharma Transmission to two of my students. They've been with me uh, for quite some time. One, one fellow, a shorter time, because he's very, very ill with cancer. And he matured very rapidly. I The wisdom of being on the edge of life and death showed itself with this fellow and uh, nothing but love and 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 understanding started to come out of his mouth the other fellow has been with me for about a decade and really knows this path walks this path day in day out 
also in his words, his actions, demonstrate such compassion and thought that I pass the torch on to them. Why? This way must keep on generation by generation. It's, it's not a matter of quantity, it's a matter of quality. These two fellows showed me that they have the fuel to keep the flame burning. So I passed on what is known as the Dharma, Dharma transmission. That's another kind of meaning of the, what did I pass on? What does, uh, reality, the teachings? Uh, yes, I passed it all on to, to this fellow, and he's going to keep the Dharma alive, the teachings alive, reality. He's going to embody this reality. Dharma transmission. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I'm going to go back to uh, my Sangha and practice the Dharma about the Buddha. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.